Hi, and welcome to the Horizon Church podcast. Horizon Church is a Christ-centered, word-based and spirit-led church. We are so happy to bring this week's message to you. And on behalf of our pastors, Brad and Ali Bonhomme and the Horizon Church team, we pray it's a blessing to you. Amen, amen. I want to read a short passage uh, this morning from 2 Chronicles 34 verses 1 to 2. Would you have a look at it with me? It's on the screen if you don't have your paper Bible or your screen Bible. Who's loving their paper Bibles? Who loves their Bible? Any Bible on, you, you know, the, the U, uh, U, uh, version app or paper, anything at all, as so long as you're in that Word, man, that thing is going to change you. I was having a great conversation last night with someone saying there is a greater saturation of the Word of God right now than ever before, which tells me the time is drawing near because every tribe and tongue are being reached. The Word of God is going out to every person. Um, so let's get in our Word, church. God's got treasures to unveil. 2 Chronicles 34, 1 to 2. Josiah was eight years old, contemplate that, when he became king. I've got a child that is turning eight in a couple of months. He's given us the birthday list. He keeps on reminding us what he wants. He's nearly eight. And so I read that in this context, when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. I find this, and just let me cough, (coughs) a curious passage. Um, It makes me curious. And let me share with you why this uh, piques curiosity in me. Firstly, He's eight years old when he becomes king. And it makes me ask the question, because I have, for all intents and purposes, an eight-year-old, if not technically, practically, um, and I go, he can't reign. He can't organise himself out of a paper bag right now. He can't make his lunch. He can't wash his shirts. He's hard up to get his pyjamas under the pillow and make his bed. In the morning, he could not reign. And yet Josiah came to kingship at eight years old. So it begs the question, if he can't reign, who is the influencing force behind the reign of Josiah? That's curious to me. I don't know about you. I ask questions like that when I come to the Word of God. But also it goes on to say, he did right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He did right in the eyes of the Lord his God, which is actually in the context of the passage peculiar to me. It shouldn't be. It's the people of Israel. He should be doing what's right in the eyes of the Lord his God because this is God's chosen people. And yet in the cultural context that Josiah is born into, there is 57 years of abject evil that precedes him. First with his grandfather Manasseh, a 55-year reign that actually had nothing but idolatry, paganism, some of the most heinous and evil forms that when you read it on a page quickly might just seem a bit bad, but when you actually sit your mind and your heart in it like the slaughter and sacrifice of infants, you would go, this is nothing but hell itself, 55 years of it. But following Manasseh was Josiah's father, Ammon. 
And he only got to reign for two years because he was such a baddie that his own courtiers necked him. He was assassinated. He got knocked off at two. They couldn't handle the thought of another long reign under an evil king. So they, and probably if my imagination serves me well, I can imagine that Josiah is probably in the palace somewhere when it happens. And he comes under the kingship in this sort of cultural soup of granddad, a baddie, 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 and his dad, a bad, 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 baddie, that wasn't even allowed to go past two years. It's a curiosity to me that he would serve and do right in the eyes of the Lord, his God. And then it goes on to say he followed the ways of his father. Who's his father? And it says in the passage, David. And so such is the evil he grows up in that this eight-year-old reaches over the top of father and grandfather and succession or predating that, predecessors, and reaches back into King David, a man after God's own heart. It's curious to me. How about you? You know, Josiah grew up in this cultural super-paganism, total rejection of God, a, a, a grandfather who desecrated the temple, filled the land with altars. It says very expressly, he led the people astray. That is not what governments and kings and leaders are meant to do, especially not if you're the people of God. He led the people astray. He sacrificed his own sons in the fire to the god Molech. This guy is absolutely seared. His conscience doesn't exist. What he does is, in fact, unconscionable. And then Ammon, like I said, he's assassinated by his own officials because he's on the same trajectory. They're looking down the barrel of, we can't handle this. 55 years and two more. We can't handle another day of this. And yet, in that context, this little eight-year-old comes to power and what follows is 31 years of reformation. 31 years where every idol is destroyed. 31 years where every altar to Baal and every other freaking demonic God gets pulled down in the land. 31 years where there's a complete and utter reformation, where the law of God is restored, where he goes to the priest Hilkiah, who happens to be, by the way, Jeremiah the prophet's father. Isn't it amazing? Jeremiah was his contemporary. Maybe Jeremiah was at his funeral. Who knows? Like, we just don't know. But they were kind of in the same cultural soup. Jeremiah prophesying, Josiah leading. And Jeremiah's father restores the book of the law to the land and suddenly Josiah has more of a blueprint to go, God, my God, earnestly I seek you. The land needs to look like this. This is the blueprint. This is the blueprint. And I ask the question, what happened, God, at the baton change? Between Manasseh, Ammon and Ammon and then on to Josiah, what happened, God, at the baton change? What happened at the transition? What happened at this crucial point when it went from Ammon, an evil king that not even his own evil courtiers could handle anymore? So um, what happened? Well, somebody's worship is influencing an eight-year-old boy to take a different path. 
somebody's courage is rising up in a place where it's a threat to serve the Lord your God among the people of God, somebody's faith is charting a different path. Somebody is speaking life into what looks like a dead stump. Somebody. I ask the question, who would rise up to worship in this type of environment? Who would have faith? Who would have the courage? And the answer is found in a parallel passage in 2 Kings. Let's have a look. 2 Kings 22, 1 to 2. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Same thing, literally parallel language. He reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of Adiah, and she was from Boscath. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. His mother was Jedidah. There is not a word in the Word of God that is there for no reason. There is not a thing in the Word of God that doesn't imply a greater truth. There is not anything in the Word of God. It is measured. It is internally corroborates. It is all completely integrated. And Jediah, Jedidah rather, is there to make the point that she is at the baton change. Jedidah was the worshipping person in a culture at war with God. Jedidah was the person that preserved the living memory of David and the ways of God because where else does an eight-year-old learn it from? And why is she sitting in the two kings passage? Jedidah, a parent graced for a generation. Jedidah, her name actually means beloved. Her name actually means Beloved of God and the beloved of God was placed at the sliding door moment in this lineage of evil kings. She stood at the hinge of a turning and she shifted it. She shifted the trajectory. She raised a reformer and she lived out the reality. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Lord raises a standard of righteousness. She became the living embodiment of that scripture. And she is a picture of a beloved worshipping people, graced for an hour in history where there's a baton change going on. You are the beloved. You are the beloved of God, graced for a generation. You, in the cultural soup that you are swimming in, have been chosen by God in this generation, in this time in history. Your times and the place of your dwelling are appointed by the Lord because you are His beloved, graced for a generation. I believe we are in a sliding doors moment. The baton is changing in all different places, in all, in all different ways. You may be having a baton change in your own home where your child is going from tween to teen. Maybe God has placed you in a workplace that is in a, pla- in a time of transition and you are placed by the Holy Spirit and you are placed there for a purpose. Maybe you are a grandparent and you have been placed in a family and maybe the grandchildren aren't currently serving the Lord and you are a Jadita. You have been placed there at a baton change. You are a beloved at a baton change. You are the beloved of God at a baton change. And God wants you to be the hinge that turns the trajectory of that family, of that company, 
of that relationship, of that person. God has an assignment for His beloved at baton changes like we are in now. God places His beloved at the baton change for a purpose. Can I just say, part of what I feel is the mandate on our conference, and I'm not gonna preach conference, I'm gonna preach Jesus, but there is a purpose for the the conference. And I believe part of it is we, as a nation, a community, a church, are at a baton change. We are gonna celebrate the last 10 years of what God has done. We're gonna honour Him and worship His holy name for all that He has done. But we're at a baton change and we're about to look forward to go, God, what are you calling your beloved to in this season? What is the hinge that we are turning on? What is the grace upon us as the beloved of God in this hour? What communities, Father God, have you caused us to reach with campuses? What people in this beloved community have you got your hand on for an end time harvest? How, God, at this conference, will you speak to us and prepare us For this moment that we are graced to be the beloved of God, we are the jet eaters of our generation who will be at the baton change, Lord, because you've picked us. Well, the question remains, if it's a baton change, what happens? And I would say that as beloved people, as His holy and dearly loved ones, it says, we are first and foremost a worshipping community. So I wanna frame it through the lens of worship. And I just felt the kiss of heaven as we worship today. Worship's not confined to what we did at the beginning of the service. It extends all through and into our life. My parenting is worship unto God. So here, worship in the broader sense. Firstly, When we worship as God's beloved at the baton change, when we worship, a path is paved. And I would even say, even when the path is broken in trajectory, as it was with Josiah, the path back to God's heart was broken. There had been a break in the succession. There had been a deviation from serving and loving the Lord their God. And maybe you've experienced that in your family. Someone once knew him, a mother, a grandmother, a father, a great-grandfather, someone in the family was a missionary. Someone served the Lord their God and there may be a break in the path. But when we worship, the path to heaven is restored. When we, as we worship, a path is paved for the next generation. So Josiah chooses David, not Manasseh and Ammon, because there was someone worshipping and paving a path back to truth. He chose the influence of mother and priest over father and grandfather. And God will cause that when there is a beloved at the baton change, God will lift the eyes to a different trajectory. They'll become the path makers. He chose a return to the Lord, not a reinforcement of idolatry. And I've seen this happen uh, in my own life, but also one of the most remarkable things that comes to mind when I think of this paving a path back to the heart of God through worship was an acquaintance of mine that I met many, many years ago. In fact, it was a miraculous encounter sitting beside someone on a plane. And I later found out through a mutual friend that we were disconnected all the way across the world. He was next in succession 
to be the leader of quite a cultic and evil but very significant sect or group in a particular nation. And my friend, my acquaintance, sat at the threshold and his father died a very sudden and very suspicious occultic death, um, is, is how I'll put it this morning. And he, as the next successor in line, trained all his life to replace his father in leading this particular style of worship that is the worship of demons, not the Lord our God, um, actually saw the trajectory of his father's life, saw the fruit of it, and had an encounter with Jesus Christ. And now leads one of the largest missions organisations in the world, and I won't name it just for identity and so forth. But I wanna make the point, why did he encounter Jesus? Because there was a Jadida, in fact, there was lots of Jaditas in the country that he was in, praying, worshipping, declaring the purposes of God over him and his family, over his community, over his nation. Their worship paved a path back to truth and it broke the trajectory of his life. Don't underestimate the power of your worship in your family. Don't underestimate the unseen path that your worship is paving, your devotion to the Lord, your Bible reading in the morning, your prayer over your children, mums and dads and grandparents. Don't youth leaders ever underestimate your worship unto God, coming up here for Friday night revival, getting home wrecked after working a corporate week. Thank you for worshipping the Lord because your worship is paving a path. But not only that, secondly, when we worship, when we worship, a generation is positioned, not poisoned. I gotta say, and I'm not gonna go deeply into it this morning, I wanna be refrained on a couple of issues I feel extremely passionate and stirred in God about. But I am so confronted by the searing of the conscience of our nation. When it comes to unborn babies, when it comes to identity and the way that we are framing that for the next generation in schools, I am so confronted. And I gotta say that I can point the bony finger of blame at the government or an ideology or a person behind it all. But at the end of the day, I've got to ask the question, God, what are you asking me to do as the beloved at a bat and change? My responsibility is not the decisions they're making. My responsibility, God, is to be a worshipper at a baton change. God, my responsibility is to be grace. You've graced me for a generation. Let me show you something that Jadida's decision to worship and be the hinge on what, which the door turned, to actually be the beloved at a baton change, probably risking it, probably not cool, probably a bit on the nose in that culture. You know, Manasseh, the grandfather in 2 Kings 21, 6, and it's, it's just heinous. And we see it in a ritualistic sense and go, how could you be so stupid? But we do it in our own culture in a different variety of ways. It says he sacrificed his own son in the fire, practised divination, sought omens and consulted mediums and spiritists. 
He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. And yet, there was a beloved at the baton change. And we can look as the people of God and go, how do you even confront something so evil and so full of intimidation? And God, what do you even do with that? I, I got to say, I read a report this week and it was from the Queensland government instructing, and I'm going to be very sanitised as I can, instructing medical staff on the care of babies born alive and how to comfort the parents and how to deal with the, and the word baby was used, until the baby is deceased outside the womb. And I've got to say, I, my heart broke. And I'm like, God, I just didn't even think I would ever live to see this day in my own nation. And I know there's reasons why. And I know my heart is not against the parents my heart is against the wicked agenda that is from hell itself, that is driving something like that. And I look at it and go, what do you even do with that God? It's, it's, it's powers and principalities and evil places. And yet you've called me and you've called us, Lord. You've called our church. You've called your people in this hour to be the beloved at a baton change, to be the beloved at a time when there's a hinge that can turn because it turned here, because it says, because of her influence on this child king, by the time he's 20, he's enacting these reforms in the nation. And one of them is in 2 Kings 23, 13. And it says, the king also desecrated and destroyed the high places that were east of Jerusalem on the south of the hill of corruption. The one Solomon, and this is so confronting too, of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the vile goddess of the Sidonians, for Shemosh, the vile god of Moab, and for, take note, Molech, the detestable god of the people of Ammon. Molech was who they sacrificed children to. My question to us is, and in fact my statement is, that Satan will always go for the next generation. You always know a strategy of the enemy when they're trying to cut people off humans off before they even get a chance at life. When they try and have an assignment against the young people and the young adults of a generation to confuse and twist their worldview. And my question is, will we rise to be the beloved at a baton change? Because it says of Josiah in 2 Kings 23, 25, neither before or after Josiah was there, and by the way, David was before Josiah, so I think this is an interesting fact, that there was a king like him who turned to the Lord, as he did, with all his heart, didn't learn it from the kings before him, and all his soul and all his strength <coughs> in accordance with all the law of Moses. I see a generation rising and they're gonna supersede us. I see a generation rising in our youth ministry right now and I'm like, you're going further, faster than me. I see an end time revival being poured out in our generation. I see mums and dads like me, older generation laying down our ambition and going, I'll serve the next generation. I'll be the mother, the father, the beloved of the baton change. They can stand on my shoulders. I don't care how heavy they are. They can be the ones 
to see a generation saved. God, pour out Your Spirit on them, God. We will worship, pour out Your Spirit. God, pour out Your Spirit on our nation, God. Pour out Your Spirit on our nation. And finally, when we worship, dead things bloom. Because when we look at this, and when, sometimes when we look at our cultural, our own cultural context, our own cultural soup that we are swimming in also, we're in the world, we're not of it, but we're in it, experiencing it. And we can feel disheartened at times and go, it's just dead, God, it's, it's too far gone. It's too far gone to reach that person, reach my workplace. Who am I in the face of all of this? And you see, we talk about revival and we pray for revival in this church and we're passionate about it and we're seeing it because revival is when dead things come to life, when things that look dead come to life and there is a resurrection and a return, a digging up of God's blueprints and purpose for a people. And Josiah reached back, he saw the death and deadness of his culture and reached back into the blueprint and God resurrected and revived through him. But can I say today, an even greater resurrection has happened in Jesus Christ, an even greater resurrection of dead things happened when Jesus Christ rose and it actually came out of something that looked very dead. It says in Isaiah 11:1, 1, out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from an old root. You know, it, it, in another version, it says a shoot will come up from the stump. And I want you to focus on that for a moment. The stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. It takes people who see beyond stumps, worshipping people who don't look at the dead wood of a culture or the dead wood of a young person or the dead wood of a family or the dead wood of an organisation or a workplace or a company. It takes worshipping people. It takes the Judeas of a generation to go, I see beyond it, I've touched heaven. I see something beyond that stump. A shoot is gonna come out of that thing. Would you stand with me? I feel we need to do something this morning as a church. And I, I believe there's people in this room that God wants to minister to, but also God wants us to minister to Him and declare something over our nation and our community. But first of all, you may be here today and there is um, dead wood, an area of dead wood in your life, a stump. You know, Isaiah talks about the stump of Jesse. It's just cut off. It was a fruitful tree once upon a time, a beautiful oak in a field. Maybe your family was like that. Your career was like that. You were full of excitement, hope and freshness. And right now it's just been cut off at the knees. It's a stump. And I believe the Word of God to you today would be, there is gonna be a shoot that grows out of that stump and His Name is Jesus. He is making all things new in your life. He is breathing on you today. There is fresh hope. But that is actually found in worshipping Him as you turn your gaze to Him because worshippers see beyond the stump. And so this morning we're actually gonna worship and it's actually gonna be an act of faith to lift your eyes, to to lift your eyes off the stump, to lift your eyes off the dead wood and go, God, I lift my eyes to You.
My help is in You. From You, my help comes from. You can bring dead things to life, God. You can revive, You can resurrect. There's this revive our hearts, oh God, it says. And the people of God, there's many people here that need a heart revival. You need a heart revival. You need a heart revival before you even believe for a revival in your family. Revive, revive our hearts, oh God. Revive our hearts, oh God. It says, God, revive our hearts in this day. But then also, you are at the point you're revived, but you need a revival in your family. You need a revival in the stump of an area of your life, your marriage and relationship. And you know, it actually comes by nothing but the blood of Jesus. There are good things you can do. There's strategy that the Holy Spirit can download. But you know, at the end of the day, we throw ourselves on the blood of Jesus. And we say no other way. Dead things only come to life, God, when You cover it with Your blood. Jesus came to life because of the power of God. His blood was shed so that You would be brought to life. Thanks for listening to this week's message. For more info about Horizon Church, please visit our website at hz.church. Have a fantastic day and we hope to see you again soon.